and welcome to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and I am very excited today to be talking about No Doubt and their 1995 album, Tragic Kingdom. resources for this episode was the VH1 Essentials documentary about Gwen Stefani, where the British guy talks about the celebrity lifestyle. He was a little distracting, but overall, I learned a lot there. I also watched VH1's Behind the Music on No Doubt, and I read Rolling Stone, Spin, and some other online resources that I'll mention throughout the episode as well. Growing up, my parents were always so encouraging with anything musical. They still are. I got most of my music taste from my dad, but my musical abilities for sure came from my mom. I had played the piano and been a singer since I was really young, but I realized in eighth grade that neither of those would land me a place in the high school marching band. My mom had always told me how great it was being in the band when she was young, and I really wanted to do it. So with the encouragement of my parents, whose eardrums would probably later regret this encouragement, I decided to be a drummer. So I bought this cheap navy blue Pearl Forum drum kit and started taking lessons. I was okay, never that great, but I tried really hard and practiced a lot. The reason I bring all this up is I remember I had this pair of Zildjian black and white Adrian Young drumsticks emblazoned with the No Doubt drummer's name on them. You're probably like, okay, cool. But I thought this little $8 pair of sticks made me the biggest badass on the planet. I was just getting into No Doubt around this time, and I thought Adrian Young was so cool. I would practice down in my basement, trying like hell to splinter these sticks so I could legitimize myself in my own head as a drummer. My parents probably wanted to murder me. When I left for college and essentially gave up drumming, I renounced the throne to my brother. God bless my parents, by the way. My brother would also play in the basement really loud, but at least he was good. It's just funny how some of the smallest things in life, even a cheap pair of drumsticks, can boost our confidence. In reality, those sticks were no different than the regular wooden ones. Literally, they were the exact same thing, just painted black and white and had Adrian Young stamped on them. But in my mind, I was a better drummer with those sticks. They gave me confidence. And maybe in our adult lives, it's that jacket that makes us feel a little different when we wear it, or a self-assuring statement we have on a post-it note in the mirror. Whatever your version of those drumsticks might be, feed into it and feel confident. Before we dive into No Doubt, we should explore the roots of the ska genre first. 
While my generation is familiar with bands like No Doubt, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and Less Than Jake as our version of ska, they are far from the first. They're actually part of a subgenre called third wave ska. Ska music originated in Kingston, Jamaica in the late 1950s. This was the first wave. Ska combined Caribbean calypso music with rhythm and blues and jazz from the United States. Here's a band called Byron Lee and the Dragonairs, one of the original ska bands from Kingston. Byron Lee came to the United States and played at the 1964 World's Fair in New York, marking the beginning of the end of the first wave. At this point, they had realized American music, American soul music to be exact, was starting to get smoother and have slower tempos. So to follow suit with what Americans were listening to at the time, Jamaican ska bands slowed things down too, creating the precursor to reggae called Rocksteady. Rocksteady lasted for a minute, then eventually evolved into reggae, and ska was officially done by 1968. At least the first wave was. About a decade later, there would be a ska revival in Britain, which fused Jamaican ska with punk rock. This is called the two-tone subgenre, and is considered ska's second wave. The second wave ended around the mid-80s. Though the two-tone subgenre was a small movement mainly confined to the UK, it was responsible for influencing the third and final wave of ska music, one that no doubt would play a major mainstream role in just a few years later. One of the people influenced by two-tone ska music was Eric Stefani, a young teenager in Anaheim, California. He fell in love with the second wave band Madness from the UK and spent every moment possible at the piano learning all of their songs by ear. Eric Stefani constantly asked his sister, Gwen, to sing along as he practiced because he couldn't sing, but she could. In 1986, Eric and Gwen started a band with lead singer John Spence, with Gwen on backup vocals. They recruited a horn section, drummer, and guitarist, and started playing shows around Anaheim. John Spence was a super dynamic frontman, and everyone loved him. They gave the band the name No Doubt. 
At one of their shows in Anaheim, 16-year-old Tony Canal was in attendance. He immediately knew he wanted to be a part of this band. Tony auditioned as their bassist and got in. And for Gwen Stefani, it was love at first sight. Gwen had the biggest crush on Tony, but he resisted, stating in a later interview that there was this unspoken rule that no one dates Eric's sister. But Gwen and Tony would eventually start dating in secret. Spoiler alert, their love story does not end well, but it would directly contribute to the success of Tragic Kingdom. But we'll get into that in a moment. By late 1987, No Doubt was becoming one of the biggest bands in Orange County. They were young, fun, and energetic, and their very small fan base loved them. Right before the new year, the band was told they would have the opportunity to play for a crowd of record executives at the Roxy Theater in West Hollywood. Frontman John Spence was so excited and made sure the band practiced like crazy after school and even through their Christmas break. But just a few days before the gig, the charismatic frontman shot and killed himself at the age of 18. No one in the band saw it coming. To them, John had seemed so happy, so in his element when he was on stage with this band. But in reality, he was battling demons no one could see. The band was left wondering if they should even continue on without him. After some time, they met up again and decided that continuing on was what John would have wanted for them. Around this time, Gwen and Tony made their relationship known to the rest of the band. Meanwhile, No Doubt had just put out a call for a new guitarist after their first one quit, and Tom Dumont auditioned and made the band. Tom had left a heavy metal band and brought that influence into No Doubt, building in this hard edge on their existing ska sound. After John's death, the band tried hiring a new male lead singer, which just didn't work out. So Gwen Stefani took over lead vocals, and over the next year, No Doubt built a crazy local fan base. One of those fans was drummer Adrian Young. When he heard No Doubt was looking for a new drummer, he auditioned and got in. The band was complete. Eric Stefani on keyboards, Gwen Stefani on vocals, Tony Canal on bass, Tom Dumont on guitar, and Adrian Young on the drums. Their stage shows were massively energetic and exciting. A record producer from Interscope Records was so taken by their uniqueness and by Gwen's star power that he signed them immediately. In 1992, No Doubt's self-titled debut album was released. No Doubt packed into a cheap conversion van and went on a small tour to promote the album. The only problem was that no one knew who they even were. The band would go to these cities and find their album wasn't even available at the local music stores, so how would they? Instead of packed venues back home in Orange County, No Doubt was met on tour with near-empty bars and, in some cases, less people in the crowd than there were on stage. 
So this was like 92, 93 time frame. And what was happening at the time was grunge. It was all grunge all the time in the United States. Bands like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, these guys had a stronghold on American airwaves and everyone was just looking for dark and angsty music to listen to, not bright and poppy and sunny. No Doubt's debut album just got buried. But the band says that despite the struggle, their early touring days were some of the most fun times together. Without curfews or school obligations on tour, Gwen and Tony had all the time in the world together. They were best friends and insanely in love. After pretty much a failed tour, No Doubt was back home and back to normal life for a while. The record company encouraged them to begin work on a second album, but this time with a little more involvement from producers. Interscope didn't want another failure, and obviously the band wanted to succeed too, so they pressed on with writing album number two. But Eric Stefani had an extremely hard time with this. He hated the idea of other producers, strangers who would come in and tell him what No Doubt should sound like. Seven years after founding No Doubt, Eric Stefani quit his own band. For the remaining members of No Doubt, it was a grind for the next year. Writing and recording and rewriting and re-recording all with the help of producers. They were just exhausted and all of them kind of felt like Eric might have been right to leave. Tony Canal had started considering changes too. He and Gwen had spent the last six years spending every waking moment together. Gwen was still getting over her brother's exit from the band when Tony broke up with her. She always said he was the love of her life, but Tony felt really overwhelmed. He said in a later interview that he knew he and Gwen both needed to grow as people, and that wouldn't have happened unless there was some space between them. The band was convinced that with Eric's exit and Gwen and Tony's breakup, this would be the end of No Doubt. But this album had been such a grind, and Gwen was determined to finish it. Instead of leaving the band, she grabbed a pen and paper and wrote like hell. And Tragic Kingdom was born. You and me I can see us dying Given the struggle they had with their debut album, no doubt braced themselves for Tragic Kingdom to be another flop. But grunge was kind of losing its luster at this point, and Tragic Kingdom was kind of the perfect comedown. It was angsty, energetic, and just a new sound that people were ready for. The album released in 1995 and was a massive success. Seeing how fans reacted, record companies started signing more ska bands, pushing the third wave of ska into the mainstream. Tragic Kingdom would become one of the biggest albums of the 1990s. 
The name Tragic Kingdom comes from a nickname guitarist Tom Dumont's former teacher had for the Magic Kingdom, Disneyland, which is in the band's hometown of Anaheim. On the cover, Gwen Stefani is front and center as the rest of the band is collecting rotten oranges amidst a sea of dried grass and a dead tree. This is a pretty clear foreshadowing for her eventual position in the spotlight versus the others. Gwen also insisted that her older brother and no doubt founding member Eric Stefani be present on the cover, even though he had left the band the year before. He does play keyboards on a few songs on this album and has some songwriting credits, but still, I'm not even sure he wanted to be on the cover. You can see him in the very back. Alright, let's get into the tracks on Tragic Kingdom, shall we? Tragic Kingdom as an album is such a great modern blend of ska and some new wave, and Spiderwebs is probably one of the best examples of that. It's energetic, the lyrics are simple and straightforward, and I imagine this was a really fun one to hear live. Unlike a lot of the songs we'll get into that were written about her relationship with Tony, Gwen Stefani was inspired to write Spiderwebs after an admirer came to her window one night reading poetry that he had written for her. This comes right out the gate with one of the best overarching themes of Tragic Kingdom, girl power for lack of a better term. And that comes into play in a big way on the next track, Excuse Me Mister. Excuse Me Mister is simple, yet it touches on a complicated frustration. A woman trying to get a man she cares about to care about her, and he just doesn't. Beside the fact that this song is an absolute banger, I think what makes Excuse Me Mister so successful is Gwen's lyric writing. It's not this message of, oh, I need a man to save me, I'm nothing without someone else, etc., that was so absurdly popular at the time, and still somehow is in 2018, but that's for another day. Instead, Gwen grows before our eyes from the girl who thinks she needs the attention of this guy to the middle where there's this circus music part, and it's more of a self-realization. Instead of talking to him, she turns to us and admits, 
It's almost as if I'm tied to the tracks and I'm waiting for him to rescue me. The funny thing is, he's not going to come. Then from there to the end, her mood and frustration just gets more intense and snarly. She turns back to him again, knowing he's not listening, so why not get even louder? What does it effing matter anyway? I love Excuse Me Mister for both its callback to the energy of No Doubt's debut album and for all the ways it looks forward and takes the chances the band needed to take in order to move forward. I think the point in the song where it breaks into that circus music just illustrates on a literal level the ridiculousness of its subject matter. The ridiculousness of love and its stranglehold on anyone who falls into it. This song, even though it still screams 90s, has aged super well for me. And Gwen sounds great on it. I love it. Stefani was kind of an outlier at this point in her career. Mainstream female musicians, for the most part, seem to be separated into pretty specific genres. On the one hand, you had your grunge darlings like Courtney Love and bands like Slater Kinney and Bikini Kill. On another side, the mid-90s saw female musicians like Sarah McLachlan, Dido, Jewel, and Lisa Loeb drawing in crowds at Lilith Fair. Then you had R&B and pop queens dominating the airwaves like Madonna, Destiny's Child, and Mariah Carey. Then you had No Doubt. Gwen Stefani had attitude, but she wasn't grungy. Her voice was beautiful, but not sensitive. No Doubt's music was energetic like pop, but also had a horn section, punk guitar, and ska beats. They just stood out. And Just a Girl was the ideal first single off Tragic Kingdom because people finally had all the best of all of these worlds. The frustration in Gwen's voice paired up with this sunny pop instrumentation and a beat you could probably mosh to at a live show. And singable as all hell. People went crazy for it. Just a Girl was the first song Gwen wrote for this album and appropriately, the first song she ever wrote without the help of her brother, Eric. He had always written the music for No Doubt, and when he quit the band, she and the other band members had to take over that responsibility. And she was the best at it. Gwen wrote this song one night after she got in trouble with her parents for driving home late at night from Tony's house. As for this song being considered a feminist anthem, I loved writer Wendy Hermanson's take on this song and on Gwen's particular brand of feminism at this point in the 90s. In her November 1995 piece for Band Magazine, Hermanson talks of Gwen's position as that, quote, one does not necessarily have to choose between cowering in silence or screaming to be heard. One can be humorous and articulate, as well as independent and forthright, end quote. I just thought that was such a perfect description of Gwen's entire ethos, both then and now. 
It's a great vibe and relatable for myself as a woman. The way I express myself as a woman is not necessarily participating in feminist rallies, but I'm also not quiet about what I need from the people in my life. And I'm certainly not alone in that regard. That's why so many women deeply relate to Gwen Stefani as a writer and as an artist. Happy Now is just a straight-up, pissed-off breakup song. And knowing about Stefani and Canal's relationship, Happy Now is savage. Not only was the wound still fresh when Gwen wrote this song, but she and Tony being in the same band together and Tony having to play bass on a song so clearly written about him, that's some true Fleetwood Mac-style drama. The tension is palpable, and I absolutely love it. Gwen sounds angry, and even Tony's bass sounds angry. The whole thing is just this perfect mix of pure emotion, ska, surf rock, and a pinch of Chili Peppers era Southern California funk. Too good. like different people. The song pulls in some heavier ska elements, especially the super active bass line and horns, but the lyrics are really strong on this one too. I don't think Different People is as much of a breakup song as it is just a very self-aware look at the world around her. I think you could argue that her breakup maybe inspired her to write this song, but she examines the fact that, yeah, people are all just made so differently, and not everyone looks at the world the same way you do. And you're allowed to form your own opinions and views that maybe aren't the same as your close family and friends. The next three tracks I kind of struggle with. Hey You, The Climb, and Sixteen just aren't my favorites on Tragic Kingdom. I can't really say why other than they always just kind of set me back a little after the high that I was just on from the first five songs. I think maybe it's a combination of two things. The first being the songwriting, it kind of gets beat into the ground at this point on that whole theme of a woman having an expectation about the world and then that expectation being dashed either by society or by a guy. And then you have some slower tempos in here that pull my energy level down just a little too far. These songs are definitely not bad by any means. I just don't get as inspired by this small chunk as I do by the rest of the record. So let's fast forward to track nine, Sunday Morning. I trade you places anyway. I never thought you could be that way. You look like me on Sunday. I 
songwriting credits on Sunday Morning have Tony Canal listed first, who tells Complex Magazine that he wrote the chords to this song for Gwen one day when she wasn't feeling well. They were at his parents' house in California, and Gwen was in the bathroom. Tony was serenading her outside the door with a song that sounded like Sunday Morning, but the lyrics were about her not feeling well. The lyrics to Sunday Morning were later written by Gwen to reflect her relationship with Tony. Drummer Adrian Young says this is one of his favorite No Doubt songs. The music video for Sunday Morning is really good. They shot it at Gwen's grandparents' house in Anaheim all in one day. The video shows them rehearsing in the garage together. Then they all start to leave rehearsal. Gwen goes off to the store. Tony gets a pot of water boiling on the stove. Adrian sets the table and Tom starts making the pasta and sauce. The band later told Complex Magazine that this was reflective of the time before the band was successful. They'd practice in the garage and then make a big, cheap spaghetti dinner and hang out. The video captures this sweet story of their friendship and ends in a big, fun food fight. Speak has made me cry before and not just once. This is an incredibly sad song that Gwen just sings with such incredible feeling that you can almost hear the lump in her throat and feel the tears welling up in her eyes. And her voice is just pure heartbreak. And haven't we all been there before? She actually wrote this song at Tony's house on his computer, just looking at the words she had written and thinking how real this had all become. She and Tony were so insanely in love with each other for six years, touring together as bandmates and best friends. And here they were at the end of all of that. And not to say Tony wasn't sad about all this either. And even the other two members of the band, the tension their breakup created, the sadness they felt, it affected everyone. Unsurprisingly, Don't Speak was No Doubt's first number one hit and stands today as the most powerful, relatable, and popular song the band ever recorded. The next two songs, You Can Do It and World Go Round, slow back down for me and I don't really like them quite as much. You Can Do It has a cool disco type of beat to it and it was written as a spiteful song about Tony. What I get from the lyrics of this song is that she's getting vibes from him that he's sad about the breakup and wants to get back together. But she's basically saying... We're over, and I'm making it through on my own, and I'm getting over it, so you can do it too. I don't really have any specific reason not to like You Can Do It. I just don't. 
Same with World Go Round. The environmental message is kind of cool and unexpected, but I've never really connected with this particular song. ended on this is super catchy and sort of has this feeling of closure in a way. Gwen and Tony's breakup was still a very new thing at this point. In fact, this was written so early on that it's one of the songs with Eric Stefani as a co-writer. The lyrics of Edit on This are so relatable to anyone nearing the end of a relationship. You've become so attached to each other, addicted in a way, and one or both of you knows it's time to let go. The going goes as it slows on those about to get in On it that are small disillusion As they enter They're on a werewolf's podcast of walls But now it's written in stone The king has been off the throne By just a leaf in the power But the people shall come to believe they do wish I liked this song. Gwen sounds great on it and I think if Tragic Kingdom came earlier in the track listing I'd be a little more receptive to it. But by this point in the album I'm just exhausted. In a good way though. Tragic Kingdom as an album is so active, energetic, and emotional that it can wear you out. I've just given it my full attention for almost an entire hour then this five and a half minute song that sounds like the theme song for a creepy Disneyland comes along. I'm just like uh, no, I'm done. I almost wish the song before this, Ended on This, would have been the last song, both for its feeling of closure and the irony of its title. However, I did hear something just in this past listen of the song Tragic Kingdom that made me giggle. I'd never heard this before, but listen to the horns at the very end for a little riff that will sound familiar to Star Wars fans. No Doubt's first big touring experience came when their record label set them up on tour with Bush and the Goo Goo Dolls in 1996. 
They traded in their conversion van and empty bars for a tour bus and sold out arenas in support of Tragic Kingdom. By this time, Gwen and Tony had been broken up for over a year. That's when she met her future husband, Gavin Rossdale, the frontman from Bush. Tragic Kingdom had become a massive success. After their 1996 tour, the band took a much-needed rest for the next few years, until their much-anticipated follow-up to Tragic Kingdom, 2000's Return of Saturn. Critics and fans alike were crazy for Return of Saturn, and the band became more and more popular by the minute. But it was around this time that the wedge would drive even further between Gwen and the rest of the band. The media became more and more interested in what she had going on. No Doubt, for instance, would be photographed together for magazine covers, only to find the finished product on the shelves with just Gwen on the cover. In 2000, No Doubt was still going strong, but Gwen started branching out a little, providing guest vocals with other artists. Her first of many of these contributions was Moby's song, Southside. The band was energized by its fan base, and even with Gwen working on other projects, no doubt had the momentum they needed to stay in the recording studio and keep cranking out more hits. Every night they toured for Return of Saturn, the band would throw these after parties where people danced to Jamaican dancehall reggae. They drew tons of inspiration from dancehall for their next hit album, 2001's Rocksteady. a good portion of rock study in California, but also traveled to London and Jamaica to work with different performers and producers. 
you can hear so many different musical styles on Rocksteady. Reggae and ska are still the anchor, but there's Jamaican dance hall and a ton of new wave, inspired by bands like The Arrhythmics, Depeche Mode, and The Cars. Rocksteady also marked the beginning of a lifelong friendship and partnership between Gwen Stefani and Pharrell Williams, who co-wrote Hella Good. Gwen Stefani had always been a huge Dr. Dre fan, so when she got a call from him to be on a song he was producing, she jumped at the chance. The result was 2001's Grammy award-winning song, Let Me Blow Your Mind with Eve. Over the course of the next few years, Gwen Stefani and Gavin Rossdale would get married and no doubt would keep touring together. Then in 2004, the band embarked on a short hiatus. They were ready for a break and a solo career was looking more and more likely for their lead singer. Gwen Stefani's first solo dance record released in 2004, Love Angel Music Baby. time that Gwen got really inspired by Japanese culture and started surrounding herself with some new muses, the Harajuku girls. Harajuku Station is the shopping district in Tokyo where kids gather on the weekends to show off their individual senses of style. Gwen had four Harajuku girls following her around all the time to interviews. They were dancing on stage with her and even inspired her to start a clothing line, Lamb, which stood for Love Angel Music Baby. 2004 also marked Gwen Stefani's film debut, cast as Jean Harlow in Martin Scorsese's film, The Aviator. She launched her first solo world tour in 2005, around the same time she found out that she and Rossdale were going to have their first child. With some unfinished tracks from the Love Angel Music Baby sessions, Gwen had more material to start working on her second solo album, 2006's The Sweet Escape. Sweet, sweet. If I could be sweet, sweet. I know I'm 
The other members of No Doubt announced they had been working in the studio on a new album. Gwen admitted she was a little behind on her end of things in regard to that music, having just given birth to her second son. But eventually their last No Doubt album, Push and Shove, released in birth to her third son in 2014, Gwen was announced as Christina Aguilera's temporary replacement on the NBC talent show The Voice. She even enlisted husband Gavin Rossdale to be one of the mentors for her team that year. The following summer, Gwen would announce her split from Gavin, her husband of 14 years. She found out that he had been cheating on her with their family's nanny for some time. I don't typically concern myself too much with celebrity gossip and breakups and such, but I do remember when they announced their breakup and the whole alternative rock world was like, okay, so I guess love is dead then. It was Gwen and Gavin. They had always been such an iconic rock couple and it was just sad to see it end in heartbreak. Around the same time Gwen announced her divorce, fellow voice judge and country music superstar Blake Shelton announced his split with his wife of four years, Miranda Lambert. Blake and Gwen found a friend in each other, and eventually more than friends. They started dating in the fall of 2015 and have been a super adorable, supportive couple ever since. Gwen's third solo record, This Is What The Truth Feels Like, released in 2016, and a solo Christmas album came out last year. Gwen is currently headlining a 25-date Las Vegas residency through next March. As for the other members of No Doubt, Gwen Stefani's brother, Eric Stefani, went on to become an animator on The Simpsons. In fact, the members of No Doubt can be seen for a brief moment in the Homer Palooza episode. At the time, Eric Stefani was one of the show's animators, and so he inserted his sister and her bandmates into the scene where Homer gets invited to be part of the festival's traveling freak show. No Doubt bassist Tony Canal helped produce some songs on the soundtrack for 51st Dates, as well as Gwen Stefani's solo albums, Pink's album Funhouse, and a contribution on the 2010 Weezer album Hurley. Tony, Tom Dumont, and Adrian Young are now all in an alt-rock supergroup with the lead singer of AFI, Davey Havoc. The project is called Dream Car, and they put out their debut album just last year. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
If you like this episode, please do give it a rating and review on iTunes and share with a fellow music fan in your life. Join me back here next Tuesday when we tackle one of the hottest artists right now, rapper-songwriter Post Malone. I've been listening to his 2018 album, Beer Bongs and Bentleys, for the last few weeks, and I'm kind of fascinated by it. And it was just nominated for Album of the Year. I'm really excited to talk about this one. So give Post Malone a listen, and I'll see you back here next week. <laughs>